Hello and welcome to Settling the Score, the podcast where we discuss the great film scores. I'm John. And I'm Andy. And we have, for a while now, been going down the AFI's 100 Years of Film Scores, their list of purportedly the top 25 scores in American cinema history. And today, we are now... Oh my gosh. Believe it or not. I don't. Down to... What? Number one on the list. Holy mackerel. Which means that in this episode, we will finally be discussing John Williams' score for the 1977 landmark box office behemoth science fiction fantasy adventure movie, Star Wars. Star Wars was produced by Gary Kurtz and written and directed by George Lucas. John, everyone has seen Star Wars. Except for some people that haven't. I actually happen to know some people who haven't seen Star Wars, and they feel it as this great burden. And if there are any people like that out there listening, I just want to say, listen... You can see Star Wars. It's just a fun movie about a young kid who, uh, you know, has a space adventure a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. The young kid is Luke Skywalker, and he's played by Mark Hamill. The beautiful and powerful Princess Leia of Alderaan is played by Carrie Fisher, and the roguish space pirate Han Solo is played by Harrison Ford. And also featuring Sir Alec Guinness as the wise old Jedi Knight, Obi-Wan Kenobi. So our hero Luke Skywalker, under the tutelage of Obi-Wan Kenobi, must leave his provincial home planet, join forces with the Rebel Alliance, and with them defeat Darth Vader and his super-powered space station, the Death Star. Good enough? Good enough. Okay, Andy, here we are. Where are we? We made it. We did. We did. Okay, ground rules. We're here only to talk about the original Star Wars. Is that correct? It's very correct. We're not going to talk at all about Star Wars The Next Generation. Well, I might talk about them in describing how this isn't them, but uh, we're not evaluating them or analyzing them or saying what we think of them beyond that. All right. Definitely no Star Wars Deep Space Nine. Yeah. So let's just say, I don't think the AFI made that rule since (laughs) this is at the top and the other ones aren't even mentioned. I think that they might have been using Star Wars to represent everything that Star Wars represents, but that's not what we're going to do. Honestly, I was hoping you would notice my dumb Star Trek joke. I just let you do it. That's not that's not noticing. That is noticing. My meditation practice says that's exactly what noticing is. All right. Yeah. Well, I closed the last episode with a dumb Star franchise confusion thing. That's the wrong one, John. Not that one. Yeah. Thank you very much. But anyway, I did have a real question that I wanted to ask you to start off with. If you had to say it in a sentence, in a pithy sentence... What's the difference between Star Wars and Star Trek? Uh, I think everything is the difference. I think they have almost (laughs) nothing in common other than the word star. And I think that that makes people talk (laughs) about them as though they have some relationship to each other that needs to be explicated that really doesn't. That's my answer to that question. That's a good answer. That's an undeniable answer. I think another good answer is one that I once heard John Hodgman say, which is that in Star Trek, everything is clean. And in Star Wars, everything is dirty. That's true. I think it's one of 
many differences. Yes, as you said. Actually, here's um, a hot take. Because why would people listen to a podcast about Star Wars at this point? There's so much content about Star Wars. The only thing we can have going for us is hot takes. So here's a hot take. Yeah, this podcast is sure going to have a lot of Star Wars minutes in it. Go on. Here's the hottest take I've got. Wow. I think this movie has a kind of dumb title. <laughs> you know, that has occurred to me. I think it has that in common with Star Trek, which also has a kind of <laughs> dumb title. I mean, at least they do a Trek in a Star Trek. Well, it's not really a Trek. It's an exploratory <laughs> journey. A Trek would be like, oh, we got to get all this stuff across these mountains or something. It's not really a Star Trek. And this isn't really about wars, certainly plural. But I'm actually saying it's dumb because it's uncomfortable to say. It's got two slightly different A vowels in it that look like they should rhyme, but they don't. That's a very good point. It's a spondy, so hard to set to melody. Right. But then the flip side of my hot take is I think that that has worked in the movie's favor. I think that has been to its benefit. Wow. Because you can just barely process that title as meaning what it's supposed to mean. So it just kind of becomes sound, which is very good for branding. And it's good for how this movie works. I think it's good for how people relate to this movie on kind of an irrational level. It's an irrational <laughs> title to begin with. All right. I, I think when you go to the flip side of a hot take, it becomes a less hot take. You're right. I'm not sure that that stayed hot the whole time. But that's the whole point. They burn out immediately. That's the whole point of a hot take is that it dies right after it's been spoken, hopefully. So anyway, Star Wars is dirty, wouldn't you say? <laughs> It is dirty. Yeah, that's one of the famous things is that George Lucas said he wanted it to look used. He wanted all of this sci-fi stuff to have an everyday grunginess to it. A patina of grime. That was an innovation at the time. Yeah, it was. Yeah. All right. Well, speaking of that, maybe we should at this point mention exactly what version of this movie we watched in order to prepare for this. Uh, okay. So... I just felt that we should back away from anything done to this movie after it was released because it's just endless. Yeah, it's a weird thing that happened to this movie is that he kept making it for decades after it was done, George Lucas did. That's right. And that's not just uh, Han shot first. He shouldn't have changed stuff in the 90s. Like they changed stuff four years later. They put episode four on it. They started changing this thing almost immediately. And uh, it's still changing for God knows why. Just for the purposes of talking about the score where we're talking about, oh, what were they trying to achieve and what did they achieve? All of that achieving or not achieving happened in 1977. So I watched and you also watched mm -hmm. the purest version we could find of the 1977 movie. Yeah, it's this kind of uh, fan restoration project. Some guys did a high quality digital scan of an original 35 millimeter print from 1977. And so it has all of the, uh, you know, little imperfections that were part of the movie. All the little color correction errors that later got ironed out. You can see the grain. This is a lot more grain and griminess just to the film stock than there is when you go see it on the Blu-ray that you can get today. I feel like sometimes that kind of thing is presented as a, you know, if you're a real obsessive and a purist, you need to have this. Yeah. And I just find that for our purposes, it helps me get in the mindset of, okay, it's 1977 and someone's trying to make this movie. What is the movie that they've made? I'm not an obsessive or a purist either, but I thought it was important to watch this original version because that's what John Williams watched when he scored the movie. Exactly. That's what he was looking at. He was looking at this kind of grainy, kind of gritty print that, you know, looks terrific in some places and looks like, oh, yeah, I understand why Lucas wanted to go back and fiddle with the settings on that spot. Right. 
And I mean, there's a whole second layer of revisionism to this in the Nouveau Star Wars, where the fact that this looks and sounds and feels kind of like 1977 is an embarrassment that they want to try and cover up. Right. Even the parts that are well done, that just kind of reveal their era, people feel like, oh, that's somehow not the product they want. I think, yeah, it's important to remember that this is not a kind of ongoing business venture. (laughs) It's a cultural artifact from a certain point in history, and it feels better to talk about it that way. Yeah, it's an artifact that was made in 1977. You know, when you watch this version that we watched anyway, it feels like a 70s movie. You know, it has that look to it. My roommate in college hadn't really seen it. And I was like, you've never seen Star Wars. Let's watch Star Wars. And I (laughs) had been watching it my whole life many, many times when I was a little kid. And we watched it. And he was chuckling at it the whole time saying this is so 70s. This (laughs) is so dated. And I found that a little painful because I was still seeing it through my five-year-old eyes, but I was like, yeah, it's true. I I see what you're saying. Yeah. The haircuts and the sets (laughs) and the kind of vibe of the whole thing. Sure, unavoidably. Yeah, well, anyway, that's the product that Williams was given to score. And himself, he was also in 1977 at the time. (laughs) He was. (laughs) Yeah. He was. He was stuck with that. So, yeah, Williams watched this kind of grimy print of kind of dirty-looking alien planets. And, you know, watching this time... I really kind of heard some of that grime and some of that dirt in the music. For example, in this opening sequence when we see Darth Vader picking somebody up by the throat to torture information out of him, the music under that is kind of playing it for weirdness. It's it's kind of slidey and slimy sounding. It sounds very organic to me. It doesn't sound flashy and shiny to me in the way that I think it wound up sounding later. You know, if he was going to score that scene in Star Wars 9, it would not sound that way. It would sound a little bit more fanciful. And then the next whole sequence of the movie takes place in a desert, really. The desert is very evocatively painted by Williams in his score with a lot of colorful wind textures that kind of remind me a little bit of Stravinsky. I bet you're going to have something to say about that. It reminds you of it. I'll bet. Yeah, well, the Stravinsky that it reminds you of is something that is canonically primitive, uh, you know, not futuristic, the opposite of futuristic. It's meant to sound primal, and my point is it doesn't sound like outer space. As you said, if he did that in Star Wars 8 in a more recent movie, our more recent idea of how sci-fi fantasy blockbuster movies should be scored, including, yes, later Star Wars movies, they do have this veneer of... Mm-hmm. Everything has been buffed to a polish. Everything here is made out of glistening chrome, right. uh, including just the sound of the orchestra. And here in the original, he uses the orchestra in more exposed ways. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, it doesn't feel buffed to a shine. The world that the music is constructing is not made of shiny chrome. It's made of rusted iron. Like here, let's jump all the way to the end. You know, the famous trench run in the Death Star battle. You know, listen to how dense and dissonant and crunchy this is. You know, that passage, when I was listening to that, something I wanted to say to you about that is you were knocking Max Steiner for just using up and down. And this is exactly that same technique of chromatic rising for rising tension. 
you looked at the skeleton of what's going on in the orchestra here, it really is da 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 And if you just played that, it would be laughable. But John Williams is such a good arranger, such a good orchestrator, that he puts, you know, the winds doing these little runs and the muted trombones in there and muted trumpets hitting the notes and they overlap. And it's such a complicated orchestration of that simple idea that I thought, Don can't have a problem with this because, listen, it's spectacular. Yeah, I mean, spoiler alert, I don't have a problem with it. Uh, (laughs) It's spectacular, yeah. But my point is that what it doesn't sound is clean. I think that that slickness that it's a surprise to us to note is not really how this movie feels. Yeah is a descendant of this movie. And that's part of what we have to be careful about in talking about Star Wars. Like, sure. it's almost impossible to see Star Wars 1977 with the eyes of a person who doesn't realize that it's about to change Hollywood and, you know, spawn all of these sequels and then spinoffs now and TV cartoons and video games, blah, 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 forever. And that John Williams is going to write all this music. lunchboxes and flamethrowers. Right, everything. If they can put Star Wars on it, they put Star Wars on it. Uh, salad, ba- I saw Salad, Star Wars Salad. <laughs> I'm serious. It was like really. What was in it? What was in it? You know, mixed greens, arugula, whatever, whatever R two D two likes. He probably calls it rocket though. (laughs) (laughs) So much of our culture now exists as a kind of attempt to evolve Star Wars that I think it's natural to say something like what you're saying, which is like, hey, Star Wars doesn't really sound like that. Yeah. But I just think that's a little bit historically flipped because like, yeah, that's somewhere that things went later. Yeah. Well, watching this original 1977 print and thinking about the music in that context, yeah, it was a little surprising to see that the way Star Wars started out is, yeah, a predecessor of how Star Wars feels now. And it sounded that way to me in the music as well. So the question is, before Star Wars was this massive, undeniable, institutional, you know, cultural monstrosity that you can't look in any <laughs> direction and avoid seeing it, what is Star Wars? What is the project here? Uh-huh. The crucial question for me was, How self-aware is this? How much is this a kind of, hey, remember the good old days, remember Flash Gordon, remember these old stories, nostalgia project, or is it really just the thing itself, you know, here's some sci-fi fantasy for you? Well, wasn't it Lucas's intention? Yes, he was very inspired by his nostalgic memories of old-time Flash Gordon serials. Which Did you ever see any of those? I went back and tried to watch them. I watched some while we were prepping for this, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was like, oh, well, I wonder what the music to those was like. Yes, I thought the same thing. <laughs> There's just nothing to say about it because it's just a mishmash of anything and nothing. Wait, that is something to say about it. Oh, we're going to say that about it. I think that is actually quite significant and I want to talk about that. Okay. (laughs) When I went to watch some old Flash Gordon, the first thing I hit was uh, Flash Gordon Goes to Mars, I think it's called. Yeah, I think I saw that one. Yeah. Flash Gordon's Trip to Mars, 1938. I started watching and the opening titles where they're showing, you know, Flash Gordon played by and Doctor's Archive played by. Yeah. The music is... Flash! Ah! (laughs) First of all... Not original. Yeah, that's right. Not original. It's just taken from some library. This music that we're hearing actually apparently comes from a 1934 movie, The Black Cat, and it's credited to uh, composer Heinz Brumhelt. But the second thing about it is, 
it's not original there either because it is ripoff of famous classical pieces. This is the Liszt piano sonata, pretty much outright. And this, if you listen, is everything but the copyright of the love theme from Tchaikovsky's Romeo and Juliet, the famous theme that I don't even need to play the real thing of because you're basically listening to it here. <laughs> it's the same chords. Right, right. It just moves like three notes around. And I thought these things are significant because there's a whole school of Hollywood stuff that took this kind of, you know, hodgepodge borrowed approach to scoring. Let's just use some library music. Let's use some classical music. Let's mix it all up. And that is the place that the nostalgia is pointed at. That is the thing that George Lucas fondly remembered. So yeah, Lucas had fond memories of these old space serial adventure stories. And I think it was his intention to marry them with this kind of Ur-mythology thing that he had read, right? He definitely consciously wanted to evoke the value of myth. Yeah. The Joseph Campbell, the hero's journey. He had read about this mm-hmm. stuff. Hero with a thousand faces, right? Yeah, but it seems like he was reading that stuff in the first place because he was trying to figure out why these old serials had been resonant for him, like what gave them power. He was plugging it into, basically, I loved watching those old serials on TV as a kid, and since I loved that, someone else would love a product like that if I made that product for them. I really think that that's the impetus here. Yeah, you know, I think there's a very similar impetus to something we talked about before, actually, on the show, which is that in Psycho, Hitchcock saw these schlocky horror films, these thriller movies, and said, oh, I could do that, and then it'll be a Hitchcock one of those. Won't that be great? And I think Lucas similarly was like, you know, I had these great fun memories of these serials as a child and I went back and watched them and they were terrible and I thought (laughs) well gee if I made one of these and just you know did a competent job of it people would love it so I think it's kind of a similar let's take something schlocky let's take something pulpy and just do a good job of the filmmaking and see what we come up with right but a difference between this and Hitchcock is that these things that he was alluding to were 40 years old yeah whereas with Hitchcock they were contemporary that's true Definitely nostalgia is an element in what's going on with Star Wars. Yeah. Uh, you know, Lucas's previous movie was American Graffiti, which famously was the first really nostalgia-oriented movie and you know, opened up this, uh, oh, let's sell oldies, let's make movies to appeal to people who are trying to think of their high school days. So Star Wars is about memories of a cultural thing from 40 years earlier. And I guess this is a classic uh, do you want to feel old thing worth noting here that Star Wars is now further behind us than Flash Gordon was behind Star Wars. (laughs) (laughs) All right. (laughs) I think it's worth pointing out because, you know, here we are talking, oh, it's so 70s. It's so specific to that era. We recognize this distance, but we enjoy it, but we're aware of it. And I do think some amount of that is going on in the making of this movie, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. So let's see now how that kind of hodgepodge of retread stuff that was found in the Flash Gordon, that winds up having, again, a resonant feel with the musical approach to this movie. Right. In the editing process, George Lucas himself and then his editors, I think just in trying to evoke the feeling he loved about these old serials, kind of took a similar tack and built up a temp track of classical music, basically, and movie music and just stuff he had Mm -hmm. on records that gave him the same feel. And so we have a quote here from John Williams, who was shown the movie edited with this temp track, who heard this temp track. He says, quote, 
what the source music did was convince me, and he's using source music here to mean music from existing sources. What the source music did was convince me that George was right about the idiom of music in the picture. Mm -hmm. He didn't want, for example, electronic music. He didn't want futuristic cliche, outer space noises. He felt that since the picture was so highly different in all of its physical orientations with the different creatures, places unseen, sights unseen, noises unheard, that the music should be on fairly familiar emotional ground. Yeah. I think that what George's temp track did was to prove that the disparity of styles was the right thing for this picture. The disparity of styles meaning the juxtaposition of an old-fashioned romantic orchestra with a new-fashioned space adventure story. Right. As far as that goes, I think a most striking example of this is in the one significant bit of unused music from the score, the original version of the famous shot of Luke looking at the sunset with two suns. Oh, oh yes. The alternate binary sunset. Yeah. Right. The first piece of music that he wrote for that scene, which is not the one in the movie, plays it as weird, wondrous, strange, we're in some distant galaxy and isn't that bizarre. Mm -hmm. That's what it plays. And it's this kind of awe at sci-fi. George Lucas apparently saw this and said, no, it, uh, we need something closer to the heart, more romantic there, more grounded. So Williams went back and wrote a completely different version. And I think it's probably the most famous and one of the best pieces of music in the score is The Replacement, which doesn't play strangeness at all. Yeah, well, I think Lucas was really right about that, was really smart, because he was thinking about the landmarks along his story derived from this common mythology, and this was the key call-to-adventure moment, and you know, that he was able to convey that to Williams. Yeah, it wound up with something really breathtaking. It really is. Oh, it gets me every single time. This <laughs> string entrance is... <laughs> it's stunning, You hear the first half of this melody on a French horn. We'll talk about what melody it is, I'm sure, coming up. Mm -hmm. And then the strings come in with this enormous swelling entrance as the camera cuts to Luke's face gazing out at the unknown adventures beyond his provincial little world here. Man, it just melts me every time. Yeah, it's beautiful and effective. And the juxtaposition with that visual, with a special effect, with a sunset with two suns, to have that music is really like a distinctly new movie-making choice. You know, when I first heard that unused track, I thought, what was he thinking? What is this? (laughs) It's so not what I've learned to expect from Star Wars, but it fits right in with the pre-Star Wars attitude. And this is one of these cases where it's hard for us to try and think back and wrap our head around that. The attitude was, hey, this is a special effects movie that you're showing off the special effects and we want to tell the audience how weird and wild and wonderful they are, right? Mm -hmm. No, no, we're not going to blink at that stuff. We're just here to play a deep mythical resonance. That scene is kind of like the cover of a pulp novel. It's just like a sci-fi painting. That kind of thing had been around. I think that sci-fi fans, sci-fi lovers had had those kind of feelings for a while. But I don't think it had ever really been done with that purity before of showing something weird outer space and playing something so purely old-fashioned human storytelling music. 
you know, it kind of shines a light on the very first thing that you see in this movie. This is a sci-fi story, but what's the first thing you're told about it? A long time ago. Yeah, it's a fairy tale. Yeah, it's a fairy tale. It's just from the get-go, everything about it is supposed to not be the future. It's something that has been around for a long time. In Lucas's mind, you know, the idea of the hero's journey has been around as long as people have been telling stories. He wanted it to feel like it's something that just has always been. So the decision to base it around music that is so firmly entrenched in everybody's consciousness is such a key insight into how to connect this with the feeling that this has just always been around. Yeah, I think that the movie is kind of constructed to recreate the feeling of a child experiencing adult culture (laughs) where they don't know what everything is necessarily. The adults seem to be talking about this thing. They've never heard of that. I just got here. I was just born, so I've never heard of this before. I'm trying to pick up on it. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the characters in this movie speak languages you can't understand. Right. Like, you just have to go with it. And to me, that relates to the use of existing music. Like, you don't know where it's coming from, but you kind of pick up that it's coming from an older tradition. Yeah. It's coming from something that's been established for a long time. So that quote you read, so Williams recognized that this temp track of pre-existing music famous classical music that Lucas had put together, that that had something important to say about the movie and that he was going to write original music, but he was certainly highly influenced by the longstanding traditions of what was represented in the temp score. Yeah. I think it actually goes a little beyond that. There's this quote that's in the liner notes of the original LP and You know, I can't really find this sourced elsewhere, but this is supposedly in John Williams' own words here. He says, At one point, George talked of integrating selections from the classical repertoire with the score. 2001 and several other films have utilized this technique very well. But what I think this technique doesn't do is it doesn't take a piece of melodic material, develop it, and relate it to a character all the way through the film. Hmm. For instance, if you took a theme from one of the sections of Holst's The Planets and played it at the beginning of the film, it would not necessarily fit in the middle nor at the end of the film. On the other hand, I did not want to hear a piece of Dvorak here, a piece of Tchaikovsky here, and a piece of Holst in another place. For formal reasons, I felt that the film wanted thematic unity. I think that thing about at one point George talked of integrating selections from the classical repertoire with the score is crucial because I think that Williams is attempting to do justice to that impulse in the way that he approaches this. He's intentionally paying homage to the temp tracks is what you're saying, right? Well, I'm saying that the quality of a temp track where it's like, as he says, you're hearing a snippet of this and then you're hearing a snippet of something else. I think some of that quality, both in its snippetiness and in its, I think I know what that is. (laughs) I think I've heard that before. I think he has tried to maintain those. I think that the temp score has been only partially digested here as a deliberate choice to make it evoke a hodgepodge of familiar stuff score. A big example I could use is the final scene where, you know, everyone knows this movie ends with a big wedding where they all walk down the aisle and (laughs) graduate from high school. And when the doors open and they walk in, first you hear the trumpets doing what you kind of go, oh, that sounds kind of like the beginning of the Mendelssohn wedding march. So, you know, this is Mendelssohn. And this, of course, is Star Wars. And then they walk into the big hall and you go, oh, that sounds kind of like the Dvorak New World Symphony. So this is Dvorak. 
this, of course, is Star Wars. And then they walk up to the front. You go, oh, that sounds kind of like Elgar bump and circumstance. (laughs) This is Elgar. You heard it when you graduated from high school if you're an American. And this, of course, is Star Wars. Williams actually said in an interview he was very proud of this theme, which he sort of coyly says kind of has a land of hope and glory feeling to it. That's the lyrics that they uh, sing in England to the Elgar. He says it kind of feels like that. Yes, very specifically it does. But yes, his is different. His is his own theme, and it's quite good. And I think this is a great example of him both copying something and being genuinely original. A, I think that the resemblance has been deliberately left there for you to experience. And B, I think the snip, snip, snip kind of tempy editing is a choice that wouldn't have been made otherwise. Especially that moment where it goes from the big, here's the hall, they're walking down the aisle, the full orchestra. And then they get to the front and woo! It's like you can hear the DJ switching to another record. (laughs) And now we're listening to Pomp and Circumstance. That's like a fully composed version of a Flash Gordon hodgepodge kind of edit. He's doing something of his own, but the temp track is very visible. It feels specifically like that, don't you think? Yeah, I do. He's managing to encapsulate the very idea of nostalgia, of it being satisfying to hear something that you've seen before, just the same way that, you know, he really saw something in Lucas's impulse to tell you a story that feels like you've already heard this story before. Yes. It feels like so many other stories. It feels like every story. I think you're right. I think that he intentionally tried to give you music that is absolutely original music, but still feels like every music. Yeah, I think what you just said is right. When I said, like, what is Star Wars doing? I think the main thing that it's doing that made it go viral, (laughs) that made it go crazy, that made it take over culture, is that it is saying to you, you already know this. Yeah, This is a story that you recognize. And that is so deeply comforting to people to have not only that they recognize it, but that the point of the movie seems to be that you recognize it. That's such a satisfying comfort food. And I'm not sure anything prior to this had been so on point about that offer before yeah i think you're right and whether he consciously articulated it to himself i think williams really really grokked that that was what was going on and yeah managed to do this magic trick of writing totally new music that is made out of stuff that yeah i just know it yeah i think that idea is really smartly captured in the re-release poster, not the original poster in the sort of pyramid shape, Uh but the re-release poster. Yeah, I had that poster on my wall in my room in college. The one that looks like old posted bills that are torn? Yeah, that's the one. Yeah, the kind of postmodern effect of that poster is at work in this. Postermodern. Postermodern. For people who haven't seen this poster, the poster is like a trompe painting of posters on a wall. And within it, there's a poster done in a very kind of Art Deco 30s style Star Wars. 
Thor is not in the font from the movie, but in an invented font to look very much like Flash Gordon. And a really brilliant thing about this poster is that Obi-Wan Kenobi, Alec Guinness, is actually on an unrelated piece of torn material from some other thing that just has not been fully torn down which I think is exactly right. There's stuff in this movie that has knowingly kind of wandered in from other movies. That is how the movie plays. And I think that's how the score correctly plays. It contains sounds that have wandered in from other music. Yeah, so there are some other things in the score that definitely sound like existing pieces of music to varying degrees. Oh, it's throughout. It's throughout. And, you know, it's actually most prominent in the places where the music is most exposed, because I think those were probably the places where the effect of the temp track was uh, most significant to the people working on it. Sure. So let's show off a couple of those then. I mean, the big one that recurs in several places in the movie is Mars from the Planets by Gustav Holst. Uh Uh-huh. One section of it is pretty clearly playing in the background when uh, the Millennium Falcon is being sucked into the Death Star by the tractor beam. Right. This one is very clear. The dramatic, here comes the climax, but it hasn't come yet, tension moment right before the Death Star explodes. Which is wonderfully prolonged. It goes way too long. (laughs) It's such simplistic and wonderful showmanship that you hear this chord so, so many times. Well, that chord and that chord being smacked like that is the way that Mars from the planets ends. It's exactly the same chord. <laughs> I mean, I do love that so much. I love that build up. You know, I like I taught myself the rhythm because it's kind of hard to follow along rhythmically with the. Uh... Oh yeah, I mean I've. Not to give away the game here, but I've listened to this many, many times in my life, and <laughs> yeah. uh, I know those rhythms well. Yeah, I know those rhythms as well, too. You know, we keep saying on the show that I was at the concert at the Hollywood Bowl where the AFI list was unveiled and performed, mm-hmm. and when it got up to number one, they played a whole big section of the Battle of Yavin Q, including up to when the Death Star blows up, and I was sitting next to my then-girlfriend Becky, you know, when these chords start going and this kind of off-kilter hard-to-predict rhythm starts going, barely conscious of it, I started kind of pounding on Becky's legs sitting next to me in rhythm with that. And she told me afterwards that it kind of hurt a little, but she felt like she had to let me, it was important that she let me do that. It, yeah, it's such a great kind of the musical payoff of the whole movie, essentially, is all those chords there. And then the music just drops down, boom, so that you can hear the explosion sound effects, which is why, as you mentioned on the Jaws episode, that there was going to be another case where he did that. Yeah, that's right. Ta-da, here we got to it. We teased then to try to think of another explosion that John Williams had scored with the technique of laying out so you can hear the sound effect. And then having some tinkling, falling music as the debris comes down. Right. And then that beautiful sigh as Lucas told that the Force will be with him always. That was one in a million. Remember, the Force will be with you. 
Vaughn Williams strings, mm-hmm. and then the playful victory fanfare at the end. The whole thing is constructed so wonderfully. Okay, what were we saying? Oh, other things that sound like things. You got another one? Well, the Stravinsky, I mean, worth mentioning. It's like on record that George had the Rite of Spring by Stravinsky record, and he apparently said, hey, no one ever uses side two, so let's do that. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. So this is the Stravinsky. Let's go back and hear the Star Wars again. And then he probably is also using a later track from Rite of Spring, this one. For when the little dwarf people in the desert, the Jawas, come out uh, sure. with the bassoon and the plump, 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 plump. I mean, I want to make clear that we're going through and pointing to these kind of sound alikes and these, you know, obvious points of inspiration. And I think that gets done a lot with John Williams. We kind of touched on this when we were talking about the temp score to E.T. Yeah. It lessens his accomplishment, not a wit to point out these inspirations or similarities, both because he, in fact, wrote totally original music that is not a plagiarization of these, but also because it was his crucially important insight and instinct to hew close to things that had been around before as part of the artistic endeavor. Yes, I'm getting this from Alex Ross, the New Yorker music writer. I didn't come up with this connection myself, but he mentions how when it was pointed out to Brahms that the theme in the fourth movement of his first symphony sounded like Ode to Joy from Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, he said, any ass can see that (laughs) because it's deliberate. I think that that goes on with John Williams a fair amount. People going, ah, ha, ha, I noticed that it sounds like this thing when it was in fact done in a spirit of... (laughs) And then I'll do a thing that sounds like that thing. It's not hidden. It's the intention. Anyway, before we get off the subject of the temp track, we should probably mention that one of the scores we have already talked about on this show lent a cue to the temp track, and you can hear a remnant of it in the final score. So yeah, that, you might remember, is the beginning of the cue called The Madhouse from Psycho by Bernard Herrmann. And yeah, sure enough, that was tempt over the scene where Han and Luke and Obi-Wan are hiding under the floorboards in the Millennium Falcon. And then when they lift up the panel to emerge, Williams kept those same iconic three notes at the beginning of his cue too. Boy, it's lucky you had these compartments. Yeah, you know, this one, I don't think this one is meaningful. I think he was probably just resembling the thing that he heard on the track because it worked. Yeah, I mean, that's another thing that really should be said in all this discussion about working to attempt track. Something, again, that I said during that ET episode when we were talking about attempt score is that, you know, it's a funny thing for a composer and sometimes you just go along with it because, you know, if you want it to sound like that, then who am I to say that it shouldn't sound like that? Uh, (laughs) It's just part of your job. (laughs) So I think this is just one of those. Yeah, I agree. 
Let's circle back to the other half of that quote Mm -hmm. that you read a while ago, where Williams said that the temp score convinced him that this old-fashioned style was the right way to go, but that he didn't want it to sound disjointed like a piece of this here and a piece of that there. He wanted there to be thematic material that was strung all through the movie, that followed the characters, and that could be put into different situations. Right. We got to talk about how he does that, because, boy, he does that. Yeah, go for it. So I think this was my sort of big entry point into not only falling in love with this score, but kind of opening my eyes to doing stuff with music for storytelling. Like, I think this was really what attracted me to the idea of studying film music in the first place was realizing the depth and complexity and consistency with which Williams sets up themes for these characters and for the ideas in the movie You can trace them all throughout and you can follow along the story in the music without even seeing the story. Did you have a similar experience? Did I have a similar experience as a kid? Yeah, as a kid, like as you were getting into this. My origin story as a fan of film music is also through Star Wars, but more through The Empire Strikes Back. I had watched these movies many, many times and taken in the music and I was, you know, musical and played the piano and cared somewhat about music, but had never consciously thought about it. And then one day in high school, another guy and I got onto this game of can you hum the music from the movie when this happens? Exactly because that game was drawing on memories that had never really had handles put on them. Like, let me see if I can think of it. It was sort of to my astonishment when I realized that I could think of it and that there was a great deal of music hiding in my brain that had gotten in there (laughs) completely under the radar, as it were, that I had never thought about musically. I'd never thought about what the notes were, how you would play it on the piano, and yet it formed all of these important memories for me, and I did have recall of it. Yeah, I was fascinated by that, and then I went back and I was like, so what is it? What has it been doing all this time that I haven't paid a jot of attention to? So that's what first got me interested in it. Not so much the specific function, but the fact that whatever that function was, it had been working. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I was watching this movie like with an eye towards, I got to talk about this. I got to talk about this music. And I'm like, all right, let's pay attention to the music. Let's pay attention to what's the music doing. And it was hard for me to concentrate on it. Because I kept just slipping back into getting caught up in the story and just following along and just like the music is so inextricably tied. It's so driven deep into my head that this just is what it is. It was even a little bit hard for me to focus conscious attention on it because of how deeply I feel like it is there and belongs there. That brain groove is pretty deep. Yeah, that is a well-worn groove. Well, I definitely have uh, maybe two grooves in my brain. There's kind of a layer to it because that high school story that I just told happened around the time that the first re-release of these soundtracks with extra material happened, a big box set in Uh the mid-90s. And my mother had read some, you know, newspaper press release about that this had come out. And she said, oh, Andy, you you like those Star Wars movies and you like music. Maybe you want to get that. Is that something that interests you? And I remember saying, why would I want to listen to it? (laughs) while I'm not watching the movie. I'm not interested in that. And then it was some months later that I was at school playing this test your memory game and realized, oh, I'm very interested in that. I just realized. And so it was at that point was the first time that I listened to this music in isolation on a soundtrack, which is a different kind of listening. I tried now to prep for this conversation to check in with what changed in that moment. 
definitely for me trying to get back into the space of being just a viewer of this movie who hasn't overexposed himself to the soundtrack uh, took a little doing. I remember you said in this segment of the Oscar episode where we were talking about The Last Jedi, I remember you said that you could identify a little snippet of Star Wars music to an embarrassing degree of accuracy or something like that. Yes, I could probably identify two or three notes and I would tell you where it came from in the first three Star Wars movies. Well, Andy, I have prepared a little game to test that. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) Yeah, we're going to play a little name that tune. (laughs) All right. I'm going to get back at you next time. But uh, yeah, go ahead. Oh, it's a game I fully expect you to win. Yeah, you didn't know that I was going to do this. I did not. (laughs) Yeah, I just thought it would be fun because I think it's true for both of us that this has been just driven so deep into our heads that I think we can both, and I tried to pick stuff that I was pretty confident that I would have been able to idea as well. So we're just going to play tiny little snippets of interstitial (laughs) material, non-thematic material, okay? It's not going to have any theme. It's just going to be some, you know, for lack of a better term, background music that, sure, sounds like it's from Star Wars, I guess, but if you're not (laughs) like us, it's not music that you should be able to identify with a startling accuracy. And yet, here, listen to this. I mean, I'm ready after two seconds. That's when the sand people are ransacking the land speeder after Luke has been knocked out. That is correct. What's this? Aldron is about to be blown up. Uh-huh. That's where the guy in the pointy-fronted helmet is pulling down the lever to fire up the Death Star? Yes, that's right. She just says, what? And he said, you're far too trusting. And fire went ready. <laughs> Good. Okay. How about this one? I'm at one second here. This is on the <laughs> cut back to the sand crawler that the Jawas live in as they're carrying R2-D2 back. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's right. Okay. Uh, good. <laughs> Bad in a thousand. How about this? Oh, you know, these are slower notes, so I had to go four seconds here. But this is called Ben Creeps Around in the original score. Right. This is when Ben creeps around. He's about to turn off the uh, tractor beam controls standing on top of a big matte painting. That's right. All right. And last one. Here's this one. This is the first time that Princess Leia's hologram appears when Luke is alone and he only sees the end of it. Correct. Very good, John. I enjoyed that greatly. I hope that the listeners did too. <laughs> I appreciated that you gave the disclaimer to all of the um, the normals out That's there, right. but I bet we've got some listeners who had as easy a time with that as I did. I bet we did. It's not like we're the only people. There's a whole class of people for whom this is true. Of course. Although you got them so fast, I don't know if anybody else had a chance to have any fun with it. Yeah, that was a good time. <laughs> John, next time I'm going to give you a much harder quiz than that I've been prepping. Is that true? You've been prepping it? Yeah, I thought we'd do name that tune for the whole series. That's going to be hard. Yeah, I got to study up. All right. Anyway, let's get back to talking through the score. And why don't we start off at the top? First thing you hear, bam. I mean, what a bam. What an opening, right? Quite a bam. Real good bam. Here's a little tidbit about the bam. He originally composed it with an upbeat that you heard in the dark that built up to the word Star Wars appearing. But they cut that. They didn't use it. He kind of reused it in Close Encounters of the Third Kind later that year. Anyway, that's the beginning. Although, you know, we should mention this movie is very strongly associated with the Fox fanfare. Oh, that's a good point. Hadn't really been used recently, and this was part of George Lucas's nostalgist attitude where he was going to bring in the old stuff, and he actually brought in the expanded later version for CinemaScope with this stuff at the end. Da-da-da-da! da 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 
Yeah, this is a tie back. This is a circle back around to the beginning of the AFI list because the Fox fanfare is written by Alfred Newman. That's right. Who's the first composer that we talked about for the first episode of our show. How about that? That's right. Now the student has become the master. And the circle is complete. <laughs> Indeed. Yes, this little bit of throwaway sort of corporate business <laughs> that he did is probably the most famous thing he ever wrote at this point. But it's good. It's a good fanfare. It's a good fanfare. <laughs> All right. So anyway, then John Williams stays in key, mm-hmm. stays in B flat to start off this main title. And writes another good fanfare. It's got a lot of echoing, contrapuntal, fanfare brass stuff this is another tie back because it is known that the temp track piece for this opening was the overture to ivanhoe by miklos roja in his epic style oh, yeah. that we have also talked about I mean, there's Rosier ripping off holes 25 years before Williams did, because that, that sure sounded like Jupiter for a second there. Yes, it does. But in any case, yeah, I mean, this score contains multitudes. I bet you could go through almost to a score and find some element of all of the scores that we've talked about and say, oh yeah, Williams is doing a thing like that here too. I think it encapsulates so much of what we've talked about that film music is and does. Absolutely. It grinds up the entire history of yeah. film music prior to it and makes a big sausage out of it. Yes, you can hear Roja right there. Mm-hmm. You can hear Korngold in the next thing we're going to talk about. You can hear Waxman. You can hear Alex North. Yeah, but again, not just an imitation of specific things that they wrote, but a genuinely artistically legitimate use of their approach and their attitude. He really is inhabiting it. He's not just imitating it. Yeah, well, I mean, all culture is a big sausage grinder. Sure. You know, Hollywood prior to this was already sausage formed out of the classical music before that. And Star Star Wars post this is a sausage ground out of this sausage. And, you know, every generation grinds its own sausage. This is a beautiful metaphor um, I'm going to stick with. And I think that's wonderful. I think that people who are uncomfortable and are like, wait, you're just copying. Like, you have a very distorted idea of how originality and culture works. Things grind up their influences and produce things that are new exactly because they've been ground up. Yes, this is genuinely new. And it also draws on, yeah, pretty much everything on the list. I don't know about uh, on Golden Pond, but yeah. pretty much everything else. <laughs> everything historically earlier, I guess, would be a fair... Yeah, uh, fair enough. Yeah. Okay, let's, for crying out loud, talk about the main theme of Star Wars already. How long are we into this podcast? I don't know. Okay, this famous melody. This melody that is inextricably linked with the opening crawl of text... It has this incredible bombast and power and epic sweep. It feels fanfare-ish and just grand and the biggest thing you can hear. Well, this is not only the music for the title crawl. This melody, you know, the melody that Bill Murray sings as a lounge singer. Mm-hmm. Nothing but Star Wars. Right? Ah, Star Wars! <laughs> Nothing but Star Wars! Give me the Star Wars! Don't let them in! 
That's Luke's theme. This gets associated with the main character of Luke. In fact, here is the very moment when it gets associated with Luke, and this is the first time that we've heard this melody since that opening title. It's when he is going with his uncle to buy droids from the Jawas. We see him sort of jogging along. Bounding. All right, fine. Let's go. Yeah, okay. Luke! It bang nails this music to him. It's just so unmistakable. And we hear the name Luke called out, Luke. We see him, and then we hear this music. It teaches you this music is for him. And because you already had heard it being the hero music at the beginning, yes. it's like hero's journey begins here with this guy. Very clear signal because you already understand where that theme is headed. Right. You've already heard this theme as a big heroic statement. So immediately the other thing that it teaches you is we're going to hear this theme in different ways. We can do different things with this music because this sounds by comparison very sweet and lyrical, peaceful even, certainly in comparison to the main title. Even if you knew that that melody was meant to be Luke's melody, you might not realize how ubiquitous this melody is throughout the movie, but it's everywhere. And I don't think you hear it the same way twice. Here, let's play a little medley of Luke's theme. Let's see, there's right after that big binary sunset romantic cue, which is a different theme we're gonna talk about. After that, he's running after R2. We hear it now. They uh, beat up some stormtroopers on the Death Star and take their armor, and then they show up in the control room and Chewie knocks out a guy, and then here's the Luke theme to tell us who's really in the armor, just before he takes his helmet off. (laughs) Then they take the elevator to the detention level in the Death Star. Here's Luke again in the music. Yeah, he's nervous this time. Now there's this gunfight shootout and the Luke theme is set against this incredible frenetic energy that's sort of weaving its way between the notes. Here's an enormous big Corn Goldian action cue when they're having the shootout across the, I think it's called Chasm Crossfire. It's called the Swashbucklers in the original score, which is a great... Yeah, that's a great tip-off that this is what Williams intended it for it to be a Corn Gold hat tip. And don't you think that that's offered to the audience to recognize to consciously dip into your nostalgia. Hey, this sounds like an old movie. It's very much the same move that happens in Jaws when he does a little corn gold as the ship's spinning around that we talked about. It's to not just do the old thing, but to reference the old thing. And to let you savor that they're doing it. What would this scene feel like if this music wasn't there saying, this is not only a fun action thing to watch, but it's fun additionally because it's similar to stuff that you know already. Yeah, you know, it's cleverly done. You hear all of that quasi corngold music and then at the end of it they swing across the chasm you've been primed to see some errol flynn kind of thing yeah. and understand why you're seeing it 
it's such a strange stunt to throw into the middle of the sequence. But once that music is there, yeah. oh, I get it. You're doing a 30s thing. It's fun. Okay, well, anyway, that was Luke's theme showing up in the music to tell you about what a great, rollicking, swashbuckling, good time Luke is having. Let's jump to the end of the movie where we hear Luke's theme showing up to tell you what dire straits Luke is in. He's in his Death Star trench run. Darth Vader's on his tail. This music places Luke in the form of that melody amongst that tension, amongst all of the shots being fired around him. You hear that in the tension in these kind of dissonant chords that are surrounding the melody. But sure enough, it's the same melody. I mean, I just rattled off a handful of them. I could have kept going. There's so many that sound so many different styles, different settings, different contexts. It's everywhere. And the same is true for what I think is the other really, really important melody in the movie. I think maybe even more important. Yeah, I think you're right. I think ultimately in the body of the score, it is more important. And I think it's, like I said, again, back in that Last Jedi segment, last year's Oscar show, I think it's one of my all-time favorite movie melodies at all. It's a wonderful, brilliant piece of composition. It's a beautiful theme. This is the theme that is associated originally with Obi-Wan Kenobi, whom everybody seems to be calling Ben in production of this movie. You know, I think if you watch just this movie, and it's just 1977, the implication is that that man's name is Ben Kenobi, and his honorary name as a Jedi Knight, in the sense of, you know, Sir, whoever, Hmm. is Obi-Wan. And he hasn't heard that in many years because he's just been living as himself, Ben. And then later they had to retrofit that, that, oh, he's living under an alias as Ben. But it really does seem like the man's name is Ben and Obi-Wan is kind of the pomp of former times. What do you think? I think you're right. Sure, I buy that. He's uh... So his name is Ben, damn it. His name is Ben. Obi-Wan is his Jedi name. Anyway, this is Ben's theme. But it also, through him, becomes, crucially, the theme for the Force. And also the theme for what the Force represents, the call to adventure. Again, this is the music that you hear for the binary sunset when Luke is looking out and hearing of the call of adventure. And that's why I think it was such a keen insight on Lucas's part to make Williams change it to include that material. This theme makes me want to call back to, I think it was on the... The On the Waterfront episode, I said I'm wary of over-committing to the names of themes because it can distort what they're actually doing. Uh-huh. I think the idea that this is Ben's theme or the Force theme or the Jedi Knight's theme or the Old Republic theme or whatever, mm-hmm. especially in this first movie, I don't think that its function is driven by the concept associated with any of those names. I think it's driven very intuitively by looking for where that stratum of the myth is, that mm. stratum of the drama, you know, the scenes where something deeper and older and destiny and... yeah. 
cycles and whatever we're talking about in The Godfather, this kind of bigger picture, that's what that checks in with. I mean, you can come up with justifications for why it's being heard in relation to Ben or the Force, and indeed Williams kind of does that on the liner notes, but I feel like that's a little post hoc to try and justify things that he just did intuitively. Yeah, I think you're right. And everything that you described about the associations that this theme has, sure, that's what I mean when I say the Force theme. Because, you know, here's a very prominent use of it. Luke has realized that Imperial stormtroopers have tracked down where the robots went, and that means they mm-hmm. they might have gone home. Oh my God, my aunt and uncle uh, are in danger. And he jumps in his car and drives, and we hear the Force theme. And then he gets there and finds out that they've been incinerated. Yeesh. <laughs> The version I watched as a kid taped off TV, I don't think had those skeletons in it. Oh, yeah. That was news to me when I hit high school. Oh, my God. <laughs> skeletons. That was intense. But anyway, here he's driving and you hear the Force theme or the Ben theme. Tough to justify why it's there in terms of any of those names for the theme, but it feels very right. Yeah. If you were going by a catalog of themes and their names, you might think, well, a uh, tragic version of Luke's theme would probably be appropriate here. Yeah. But he feels what the drama wants, and it really doesn't matter what the name of that theme is. Yeah. It actually helps the movie's unity. It helps it to all stick together that he doesn't use them too slavishly. Yeah, that's right. He doesn't. Yeah, I mean, you hear them in so many different contexts, and they have this kind of cloud of associations because of just his intuition of where to put them. Here's the Force theme amongst this kind of frantic action stuff for the shootout when they're escaping from Tatooine in the Millennium Falcon. Right. When the X-Wings, the you know good guys spaceships, do this cool rolling formation dive into attack the Death Star and you hear this kind of contrapuntal treatment of it where it's mm-hmm. getting batted back and forth between different brass instruments. It's like all of these spaceships are now being called to their adventure, you know, echoing with the sweeping romantic expansiveness of this melody when Luke was staring off into the sunset. You know, that it's the same melody, that it connects with the adventure that he thought he was seeking back in the beginning of the movie. Now he's living it and flying these spaceships. It's so wonderfully done. I don't know if there's another example of a score assigning a theme to a thing and having it be a really identifiable melody that you can recognize and hum by the end of the movie and understand that it means that thing. And then having that melody itself be such a great melody that is worth remembering. Man, I don't I don't think there's I don't think it gets better than this. I think it's a wonderful melody, a wonderful theme. Yes, I'm in agreement with you, but I will return again to the I'm not sure it is assigned to a thing. You know, prior to my high school conversion into a conscious appreciator, I think I thought of that melody as part of the feeling of Star Wars and part of the place you go when you're watching Star Wars, part of how that world works. I think it's strong because it is associated with the myth, the project that this shall sound like myth, more than with any given character. Actually, the very first time you hear that in the entire Star Wars series, the first time that that Force theme is unveiled, is in the opening scene when, uh, you know, C-3PO goes off to the side and sees a pretty lady putting something in the short robot. What's going on (laughs) over here? 
R2D2, where are you? We hear this theme. We don't know about Ben, we don't know about the Force, and what it means, uh, I think, at that intuitive level that made him choose to put it there is just there is a story. Yeah. There is a bigger story. You're going to find out about it. Yeah, you're right. You, a child, don't yet understand, but you shall. I agree with that. Maybe I shouldn't have said that this is an example of something getting assigned to something. I just means that the themes he picks are incredibly, superlatively productive. And I really like that way of putting it, that this maybe even more than being Ben's theme or the Force theme is sort of the theme of the concept of a mythic story. Yeah. I think you made a great point when you said that the fact that these themes are very recognizable, very productive, but not super slavishly nailed to exact specific things. This force theme that we're talking about is passed over in just such a move. And I think what is the most notable example of some sort of thematic crosstalk, which is when Ben is apparently killed, when Darth Vader hits him with his lightsaber and he disappears, boy, you'd think you would hear something about Ben's theme there, some mournful version of it, but no. Yeah, you just hear music that feels like whatever music they wanted it to feel like there. And he uses a theme that he has established in the movie. Sure. And that's uh, good enough. It's Princess Leia's theme. And he's quoted talking about that, saying, yeah, I just, we needed something sweet and singing there. And that's the material that I had that I thought could do that the best. Yeah, I think he says we needed something wildly romantic. Actually, I think we have audio of him. Ben is is either died or or dying offstage, and they are escaping. It's a gun battle as they escape. And what happens is that I play wildly romantic music in a kind of tragic setting, which represents their reaction to his death. And oddly enough, the best piece of music was not Luke's or Ben's, but it was the princess theme. In a way, it's... I'm playing it musically to, to, in, in the sense that it's what's inside of her and Luke uh, and their reaction to this. Again, I think that he might be sort of tiptoeing around the real truth, which is we needed something to resemble the choice that had been made by the editors via the temp track. The thing that happens right after that, this da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da... Uh, Such an old school Hollywood thing to do. That's a very Max Steinery kind of thing to do. Mm-hmm. One wonders what piece of old Hollywood music was there. He doesn't do anything else like that elsewhere in the score. So I think, yeah, they had picked that there would be some kind of soaring violin, some dramatic violin uh, leap up, and he had one melody that leaped up, and it was the princess melody. And that is enough because, yeah, what's going on is not, it's not explication of the plot level of the story it's explication of the emotional level exactly you don't need the themes to like remind you what characters are on the screen yeah he has an intuition about just their deeper significance while at the same time really having a very well-defined menagerie of themes in subsequent movies he got much more strict about these things yeah that's true i think he might have felt more like the eyes were on him because (laughs) the phenomenon of star wars was bigger than anyone could imagine in every way and that includes you know main theme from star wars got to number 10 on the billboard chart so i think williams may have felt like whoa if we do another one of these I am going to be more careful. I'm not going to screw around in a way that later I won't be able to justify. There's just a different attitude brought to the next one. Wow, this really blew up. Yeah. So yeah, that was a big, swelling, romantic statement of the princess theme. Let's go back and hear it when the association is sealed, when we see the full holographic message played back, and we hear the full statement of her theme. 
which he describes as a fairy tale style theme. Yeah, I have to admit that this is the theme that I didn't really have a strong impression of prior to becoming a film score nerd and paying attention to everything. You know, she's talking over it during these scenes, which means that it doesn't land as hard. Also, it doesn't really sound anything like Carrie Fisher as Princess Leia. Hmm. It very much sounds like the idea of the beautiful space princess, which I think part of the magic of the movie is that through the casting, they got to have their cake and eat it too, because she's kind of always breaking out of that and sure. rolling her eyes at it a little bit. I mean, I think that is also another really important ingredient in the stew of why this thing took off in the way that it did, undermining that specific trope and style of how the female character should be. I do think that that moment at the beginning when you see a gun battle and then you see a like glammed up woman in a white gown for the initial audience that must have been a very strong kind of signal that it's flash gordon it's the corny mashup of stuff you know there's a princess on a spaceship it's already wacky (laughs) so the theme for her goes all out with that yes the beautiful princess from the planet of alderaan the movie itself doesn't really follow through on that her theme in the later movies doesn't always know where to go for that reason but it creates an interesting dynamic in this first one. Uh, What other themes? I mean, the Rebel fanfare, I love this. Oh, sure. If you would ask me as a kid to hum the music from Star Wars, that's probably the first thing I would have hummed because you hear it again and again and again. In the Here They Come cue, you hear it like four times in a row, and that gets a little kid to memorize something. You hear it four times in a row, four times in a row, or something, at least. Right, yes, exactly. It's these parallel triads where there's a little bit of spice in the moving from one to the other because they don't share all the same notes. It's a very clever, tiny little bit of musical vocabulary that encapsulates so much about the spirit of this movie. References to Corn Gold and Roja mm-hmm. and to a whole older tradition of fanfares, but he uses it so nimbly and it always has that sparkle. It's really just two chords back and forth and then a little turn. I think it's just so, so perfect. Yeah, of course it is. I idiosyncratically really like one other little parallel motion in that Here They Come cue. He's set up this incredible amount of energy and action, and then at one point he has all of it drop away, and just the French horns go... I always imagine that you can sort of hear a little bit of struggle on the part of the instrumentalists to keep it together. Mm-hmm. You know, listen, the London Symphony Orchestra Brass were famously phenomenal in the recording of this score. But it always seems to me here, yeah, that you can kind of hear them careening, like they're, uh, <laughs> they're going around a curve and they're up on two wheels. Which is, I think, intentional in the flow of the piece. It somehow is absolutely the natural analog of the screeching through space of the TIE Fighter. I think it's probably worth a mention that this score is performed by the London Symphony Orchestra, which is to say an existing orchestra, organized orchestra, not a pickup orchestra of contract players. 
I think Williams was hooked up with this by his friend Andre Previn, just died, rest in peace, who was the conductor of the London Symphony Orchestra at the time, and they wanted to start doing uh, movie scoring work because that's uh, lucrative, and they asked him, who has a movie score that needs to be done? And he said, oh, call my friend in Los Angeles. And they called him, and Williams said, well, I, I have something I'm working on, but it's all, I think the quote is, up in the universe, so you probably <laughs> wouldn't want to work on it. <laughs> and they said, no, we'll, we'll do anything. There is definitely something in this performance that feels like it connects with yeah. what's intended in every moment. It doesn't just feel like a cold, if perfect, performance of each of the notes in order. Yeah, it too is organic and hasn't been unduly polished. Yeah, that's right. I think the fact that it is the London Symphony Orchestra and the brass has been recorded in this way that makes it sound so rich and big and satisfying... lots of brass players today who took up their instruments because of the Star Wars soundtrack. Oh, that's absolutely true. I was talking to my friend Amy, who's a horn player, who spent all last summer playing all three original trilogy Star Wars movies in these live-to-picture performances of the score where you watch the movie with an orchestra playing the score live. And she was telling me exactly that, that getting to play these horn lines that are so bold and exciting that you find in the Star Wars scores was what inspired her to be a horn player in the first place. Yeah, I think that's been true for years. I mean, I think that John Williams for decades after this, probably still, goes to an orchestra. People come up to him and they, I just want you to know that my whole career is due to the enthusiasm I felt for the Star Wars score. I just think it had that kind of an impact. And of course, it famously had that kind of an impact on the industry, on Hollywood. Oh, we can use old-fashioned, big orchestra romantic scores. Yeah. And I think it can sometimes be overstated how much Star Wars was the first one to do that in forever because, you know, we were just talking about Jaws from several years earlier and that also has a big orchestral romantic score. Only two years earlier. Two years earlier. So Star Wars was not the only one, but it had the effect of moving, yes, all of film scoring in this direction, and musicians and classical music, it just had an enormous impact. Yeah. Andy, what do you think a power converter is? Um, it's probably some kind of device that they use to connect their generators to their equipment. Oh, you actually have an answer. Wow. Okay. <laughs> But why, why would it be like a fun teenage hangout thing to get? Uh, I believe I can explain that to you. Oh, great. I'm so glad I asked. When Luke says that I was going to Tashi Station to make up some power converters. Take these two over to the garage, will you? I want them cleaned up for dinner. But I was going into Tashi Station to pick up some power converters. You can waste time with your friends when your chores are done. I on, believe that when his uncle says you can waste time with your friends, his uncle is seeing through a transparent lie. I don't think he's saying that he was going to have fun picking oh. up the power converters. I think he's saying that he has important work for the farm to do. You have to let me go do this. It's very important. And the uncle is saying, I know what you really mean. You're just going to go waste time with your friends because clearly you don't want to pick up power converters and you can do that some other time. Oh, wow. That's what I think is going on I there. think you're right. And I can't believe I never heard it that way before. <laughs> yeah, I always thought that... I think that... it's because it's not quite delivered quite right. But what are you going <laughs> to do? Yeah, you have a quibble with this particular line delivery you don't say <laughs> i gotta say 
I think that Mark Hamill gets underappreciated. I think he takes the job of being just some kid really seriously and brings this open-eyed sincerity to it that the movie really does depend on. I can't disagree. I think the casting of all three of them keeps this movie alive. They all share an openness. You sense Mm. the warmth of this group of three and the warmth that they're bringing to this goofy movie that they're making and you pick up on that. And it really has this feeling kind of under the surface of being like a high school movie. has more in common with American graffiti hmm. than it might seem. Yeah. Teenagers who have to go do some adventurous thing together and meanwhile they have crushes on each other. <laughs> and I think that's a major part of what makes this movie work. The score doesn't really have to touch that. That's not really its business. But I do think that that's going on in this movie. Sure, sure it is. Hey, besides Harrison Ford, here's a trivia for you. Besides Harrison Ford, can you name the only actor who has speaking lines in both Star Wars and and Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, William Hootkins? Yes, the answer is William Hootkins. Very good. (laughs) Who's given the rather demeaning name Porkins here. Yeah, I admit that I kind of had my mind blown embarrassingly recently when a friend pointed out to me that, yeah, Porkins, Red Six, I believe, in the Battle of Yavin, is the same guy who says top men to Indiana Jones. If you didn't know that, now I blew your mind, so there. But I didn't. Should we talk about the cantina music, at least in passing? Yeah, so this is everybody's favorite piece of source music. This is the music that is being played in the cantina in Moss Eisley, and you see the musicians on screen. The band is called Figrin Don and the Modal Nodes. I have a t-shirt with them on it. But John, when was it called that? Was it called that in 1977? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know. I believe that their names are... Musician Alien 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7. Yeah, you're right. I think you're right. Anyway, they're playing this uh, outer space swing music, right? Yeah, or it's really pretty much just swing music. I mean, it's outer spaciness is very limited. That's true. Kind of just being played on saxophone and vibraphone, really. Well, I would say it's two claims to outer spacitude are that it's got this synthesizer bass going wah, 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 wah. No, you can't really hear that in the movie, but you can hear it on the soundtrack. And its second attempt to be outer spacey is that it is not a vibraphone. It is a Caribbean steel drum. Oh, pardon me. Which is kind of a clever, bizarre sci-fi substitution. You take an instrument that clearly is like another instrument that would belong there, but it's a weird version of it, so maybe aliens would choose that. Anyway, I think Williams was actually set to write something that sounded much more outer spacey. And it was Lucas's insight, no, I want it to sound like Benny Goodman. Yeah. In fact, I think he said he wanted it to sound like Benny Goodman because he picked a Benny Goodman track to use. Have you heard this one? Yeah, I have. And if you listen to this track, you can really hear how the cantina band came out of it. That has a vibraphone solo. That has a Lionel Hampton vibraphone solo. So, yes, you have this sense of, okay, how can I take that track but turn it into outer space source music? It's kind of a funny choice. It's supposed to be this dive bar in the dangerous part of a Nowheresville. Like, why do they have a pretty tight jazz <laughs> band playing swing? It doesn't really fit at all. It doesn't even really fit with the tropes that it's alluding to of, like, it's supposed to be like the Old West saloon, really, right? Yeah. Have that music 
and then all of those crazy uh, alien costumes is unforgettable because it's so bold and so strange and to this day I'm not sure I could entirely explain what it is putting across. Yeah, this is really one of those things where my mind can't <laughs> pro- <laughs> my mind is so deep in this groove that uh, like, Right, how else could it ever be? Yeah, exactly. The idea of thinking critically what this music should be just like slips past me. It's there. It must be. It must be. It's great. I mean, it's just a wonderful piece of music. Hey, here's a moment that I wanted to talk about. Oh, good. I have a few moments that I just wanted to talk about, too. Yeah, let's do that. Let's do some moments time. So the first bit of really exposed music after the opening is when... Is this going to be the same moment? Do I have the same moment? Go ahead. Probably. When the droids get in the escape pod. Yeah, the droids in the escape pod. That's a moment. And it falls to the planet. When the escape pod launches right out of its escape pod tube. I think one of the things you can see in that Making of Star Wars book is the first page of spotting notes, and it says something like... Romantic. Yeah. And boy, is it romantic. It's eye-opening. You know, there's been a lot of action up until now. There's been some gunfights, and then there's some weird space torture happening. But in this moment, yeah, the music is way to the fore and intensely romantic. And I always sort of get rocked back by it and go, oh, whoa, this story is that big? This story is so grand and highly romantic, a story to be sung. It feels like it's a curtain opening moment. It is. It's almost, I mean, when you look right at it, it is astonishing how outlandishly big a choice that is. I can only imagine working on the movie saying, do you think that this is playing this special effects shot of a little pod flying from right to left across the screen a little big? guess what you just said is good it's a curtain throwing back moment of like you are in for some big storytelling here get ready yeah that's what it is that's absolutely how i feel it's interesting that it needs to be there given how much of a gauntlet being thrown down the opening titles are with the old-fashioned text scroll and old-fashioned fanfare on this huge scale that does feel like it's saying okay here we go but then you do kind of need it again in the story itself. Yeah. That it's not just in quotes. It's not just a reference. This thing itself has that romance in it. Yeah. I'm really glad that we had the same moment. There's been other times I've said, hey, I bet we're thinking of the same thing and we haven't been thinking of the same thing. But yeah, that's definitely on my uh, list of moments. Hey, you know, I bet some listeners out there have been waiting for us to get to a certain piece of musical material from Star Wars that we haven't talked about yet. The Imperial March, Darth Vader's theme, right? Hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, no, of course, it's kind of a funny thing to realize that that iconic melody was actually original to The Empire Strikes Back, and that in this first movie, Darth Vader had a totally different bit of musical material, and that sounded like this. I don't know if this is one that I ever heard about being in the temp score, but I always thought it reminded me of this little bit from The Nutcracker. Yes, it reminds me of the Arabian dance from The Nutcracker. Yeah, it does. I doubt it. Who would pick that for the temp track? Yeah, who would pick that? But the notes. Do, 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 yeah, 
I have always thought that was a strange choice. And in the last couple of weeks, I was trying to figure out why was that his motif for the bad guys in this movie? He clearly realized that that was a thing that needed rethinking when they went on to the sequel. Maybe it's supposed to sound kind of like, rather than the military aspect of empire, that it's supposed to sound, you know, like the decadence of the Roman emperors. Uh, you know, that, uh, that trill is such a not a military thing to do, but it is a kind of like King Herod thing to do. I think the key part of the motif to him is the opening interval is bum 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 ba da dum and once you get tuned into that rising third gesture ba da dum you can really hear that woven all throughout the score. Yeah. Sometimes even a little transformed. Like at the very beginning of the movie where there's a gun battle in that hallway of the spaceship, you hear dun 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 da 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 dun Sure. He definitely gets a lot of mileage out of it, sort of structurally. It's useful from a technical compositional standpoint. I'm not sure how much mileage he gets out of it representationally. Doesn't signify that much to me. Fair enough. It's not scary. It's certainly not as scary as, you know, the thing that he came up with for the next movie and for all the rest of the franchise. I think what's maybe scarier for the bad guys in this movie is the music that he uses for the Death Star itself. Right, which is hardly even a theme. It's more like a sting. Sure. For cuts to the Death Star, uh -huh. cuts to the bad guy. Da, 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 da. This is such an in quotes kind of thing. Yes. It's not being camp in this moment, but it's basically inviting us to know about the tradition the same way that camp does. Yeah, I agree. I think that's exactly right. And, you know, something that always reminded me of it a little bit and i think it's because it has exactly the same intentions of sounding like uh old-timey sting that you know exactly what it means i know what you're gonna say i wrote it in my notes too you do know what i'm gonna say wow we're really uh on the same page here wait <laughs> i am dubious that you know what i'm gonna say you think i don't but i think i think i know what you're gonna say okay one two mm -hmm. three doctor, doctor evil. evil yes that's what i knew you were gonna say wow anyway the doctor evil sting is i always thought of the death star sting Another similar thing that I wrote down is dramatic chipmunk, the classic internet meme where a non-chipmunk turns around. It's like a two-second thing. And the music clip is originally from Young Frankenstein, which is also a spoof. It's also Yeah, they're kind of making the same joke. Yeah, but that's what's fascinating. No one thinks it's a joke in Star Wars. It plays slightly differently, right? Yeah, that's right. It plays as one of the more explicit references to, you know, old-time adventure serials. But that's what's so fascinating, that the same move can be comedy in this other context. It is camp in Austin Powers. It's like, could you imagine if we actually tried to sell you this villain like this? That would be so corny and funny and old-fashioned. And in Star Wars, basically the movie is saying, can you imagine if there were a movie like this? Wouldn't that be wonderful? Wouldn't you love that movie? Hmm. It has the same kind of meta quality to it. Yeah. But it somehow has gotten us all on board with the idea that we're just there to enjoy that and to enjoy the way things used to be. In this first movie, there is a knowingness about that that I think that as the series went forward, they had to kind of shift from what if there were such a movie to, well, this really is that movie. <laughs> That's the main difference I see between the first and the second movie. And someday I hope we talk about the second movie, which I think crosses over that line from, hey, wouldn't it have been wonderful if this movie had existed to <laughs> I am telling you the story right now. Huh. Okay. Well, yeah, it would be great to talk about that movie. And now 
I'm really looking forward to that conversation. But maybe maybe the fact that we're looking forward to that conversation means that we can <laughs> finally be at the end of this conversation, do you think? All right, fine. Let's move it along. Move along, move along. Yeah, stay on target. Almost there. Almost there. <laughs> All right, Andy. Yeah, here we are. You know, we've gotten to the end of the AFI list. We've talked about now the number one score, and the only thing that's left for us to do is to say whether... We think it's the number one score. I mean, look, I think it's been clear that we're both fans, right? We're both going to put this high up on our list, at least. Yes. So, look, I really think the only question is, on our personal rankings that we've been keeping this whole time, that you can see on the podcast website, settlingthescorepodcast.com, go to our rankings and see how we have reordered all of the AFI's top 25 scores. The only question remaining is, does this go at the top of the list? And I think it's a yes or no question. Does this go at the top of the list? Let's count to three and answer yes or no. Okay. (laughs) All right. All right. I mean, of my list is all I'm answering for. But yeah, go ahead. Yeah, that's right. That's all we've been doing. Three me up. All right, Andy. Does this go at the top of our lists? Three, two, one. Yes. (laughs) Wow. I, I'm surprised I thought you were going to say no. I'm surprised I thought you were going to say yes. What the hell? Yeah, well, now uh, I guess I have to explain, because we've been completely positive on this episode so far, what my reservations could be. No, I am not going to put it above E.T. Vertigo and Psycho, hmm. because those feel to me like complete works, and this feels to me like sausage, as I was saying, or really like some new recipe that was discovered by George Lucas at this moment in cultural history. I have a new recipe recipe for popular art and the discovery of that recipe was a huge deal and music is an important part of that recipe like this music is the tomato sauce on a pizza and this is the first pizza ever made (laughs) and i think that like that's a huge deal it's also very good, has served a very important role in my life and in the lives of many other people, as we were saying, this particular score. But to me, it feels like it's that whole achievement and the fact that the music plays that role in that whole achievement that is truly outstanding here. And then the music is very good, but so is the music in all of these top movies. I guess part of my feeling that it doesn't go at the top also is when I think about the next one, I think... Oh, he really went further and achieved something tighter and stronger there. And um, someday I'd love to talk at length about that, and so would you. So let's put that on our docket for future episodes. Okay, so you're putting it at number four? I'm going to put it at number four, yeah. Underneath E.T., Vertigo, and Psycho. Before ranking this movie, I also have E.T., Vertigo, and Psycho as my top three. (sighs) I mean, look, I hear that. I hear what you're saying, and I will admit that as I was going through and studying the score for the umpteenth time, it did occur to me to think, well, is this better than E.T.? I mean, the music in E.T. is just just deep in your bones wonderful, and maybe this doesn't quite have a moment that gets to that. I hear that, and, you know, the stuff that we said about how E.T. and Vertigo both are made to be carried by their music, and this was kind of made, yeah, like you say, to be a pizza. But, it, I mean, maybe even the tomato says it's wrong. Maybe it's the crust. I would say this movie is carried by the music. Oh, it absolutely is carried by the music. Yeah, of course. You know, the phenomenon that Star Wars is, the fact that people thought it was a world that they could sink all the way into, that it was a world that needed to be populated by everything that you can think of and that every part of that world is worth being in all the time in every way, 
that whole concept, I think, gets its underpinnings from Williams constructing this world for you and making you feel like it's a real world that really exists that you can really be in. I guess at the end of the day, that's why I am going to let it be on top, because I hear your justification of keeping that Troika on the top, and I respect that, and I kind of was close to doing that myself. I think what you just said was very true, that people's investment in this is because the thing they're investing in is fundamentally musical. Yeah. The movie is like watching people swimming through music, like their world is made of music, and that's why it operates. To go back to my initial hot take, that you know, Star Wars is kind of a dumb title if you think about the words, but of course you aren't thinking about the words. You're experiencing it as this sound that uh, you associate something with. And I think the whole franchise works that way. You are experiencing a musical phenomenon truly first and foremost. So I would never say this movie is not carried by its music. I just think the music it's being carried by is, and for all I've said at great length deliberately, a hodgepodge, a kind of reference. And there was further for it to go that it later went. So I reserve spaces on my list for such things. Okay, and you're saying that E.T. Vertigo and Psycho are more originally creative, more distinctly unique in what they did. I think Psycho and Vertigo certainly have a compositional solidity to them. This is Bernard Herrmann's vision. Here it is in music. Now the movie is that. E.T. is kind of various. It has all kinds of different stuff in it, but I think that the big vision there of the, you know, it's kind of like the romantic gesture with the escape pod writ over the length of the entire movie in some ways. Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. I can't disagree with that. And you're absolutely right that I feel that kind of eye-opening, wow, what a big romantic thing I get to partake of feeling that I was saying in that escape pod moment. Yeah, I do get that throughout all of E.T. And that's something. You have to admire about John Williams that he is willing to risk going too big with stuff yeah and occasionally in his career he's done that and it has absolutely been too big and it doesn't match up doesn't doesn't feel deserved but when it pays off there's no better risk you know we can do an episode about uh, space camp someday and say like <laughs> eh, I, don't, I don't know if this if this worked out but that he goes there and that he's willing to play things so so romantic is exciting and i think it actually takes up more of the screen time and heart time in et than it does in uh, star wars <sighs> I think that's right. I don't think I'm going to change my mind, though. I think you're right, and I am glad that one of us is keeping E.T. at the top. (laughs) I really do. I respect that, and I really did consider. I didn't think that this was a slam dunk. uh, has to be at the top. But, yeah, I think I'm going to be the one who puts it there in deference to the depth of the world that it built and how compelling that world empirically has been in everybody's lives. Sure. This musical foundation that he built for this movie was so strong that it ate the rest of entertainment for 40 (laughs) years. (laughs) Yeah. I am just in awe of John Williams' ability to digest everything that came before him, to make a product that was uniquely his own, but that is inextricably linked with what's come before him and has become inextricably linked with everything that has come after what he did. It's just seminal in a way that, you know, can't get around it. On top of that, it's super great outstanding music. So, uh, yeah, 
I'm with you on all of that. That sounds good. You know, the AFI never announced, they didn't really say what their criteria were. Sure. If their criterion was influential, it's a very natural thing to put in first place because all movie scoring history since this has reckoned with this. Well, right. They didn't announce the criteria, but sure, we've included influential on our criteria before. So yeah, I've been trying not to go too far in that direction. You are letting in a little more of it. It makes sense to me that that would push it up to the top. I think that's what happened. Yeah. Here's a late-breaking thought I'm going to stick in at the very end of the show. This is because you said that thing about his achievement in making that thing that felt like a place worth going. When Williams said he didn't want to hear a piece of this here and a piece of this there, even though that worked in 2001. Yeah. Yeah, I think in addition to having themes that thread through the movie, the reason not to use classical music like 2001 and to have it all be from this same voice is that it makes a place that is being offered to you because it is unified because it is all a voice that belongs to this movie there's no external voices actually in the movie even though there's allusions to things even though the voice in the movie says hey we remember this hey we remember that it never steps back to the place where the editor and the director live and if you think about 2001 if you think about a Stanley Kubrick movie there is a reserve to that there's a kind of distancing effect yeah. of selecting from other places it intellectualizes what's going on at a subtle level yeah it does i was thinking about that sure because yeah i knew that lucas had 2001 in mind when he was picking out his classical temp score and i mean you know you can't deny that thus spake zarathustra is phenomenal in the effect that it has in 2001 and the blue danube is terrific but yeah they have a bit of commentary built into them yeah by being things that you recognize you know it's not only saying twirling space stations could be choreographed to the blue danube it's saying I am putting the Blue Danube in this movie so that you can think about the associations between these things that already exist. That's right. You know, in the case of Flash Gordon, the juxtaposition of borrowed music, you know that it just comes from like the laziness of Hollywood and people not caring. But in the case of a well-produced movie like a Stanley Kubrick movie, yeah, you sense that it comes from someone saying, I have an idea about this. I have a point to make. A point to make, yeah. And the ligety that he puts there also has a point to make about the monolith. And yeah, I mean, it's astonishingly well chosen, it turns out. I mean, I feel bad for friend of the show, Alex North, who composed an original score for 2001, was invited to the premiere, (laughs) only then to discover that his score had been thrown out and replaced with all these needle drops. I think that Kubrick was attached to the fact that these things were external, the fact that it had that commenting quality to it. Yeah, that's right. And I wonder if in this case, Williams was like, this guy really cares about his temp track. I don't want a 2001 getting pulled on me. I am going to keep that alive. I am not going to completely step away from it. I'm going to be the voice of it. I mean, can you blame him? No matter how well you think 2001 (laughs) works, you've got to admit that's a jerk thing to do to a composer. (laughs) is to invite him to the premiere to find out his score had been thrown out. He should have told him. He should have told him. Definitely should have told him about that. I could imagine it being like a thing that got whispered around town in hushed tones amongst composers. Like, did you hear what happened to Alex North? So yeah, it was like a boogeyman that Williams wanted. Wanted to avoid. So anyway, the reason I brought this up is I wanted to tie it to the idea that the really valuable thing that it puts across is it keeps us close to the movie. It never pushes us away to say, I know about other stuff. Sometimes I am other stuff. And that pays off as exactly the thing that you said. People want to be there because there is a there. Yeah, that's right. He makes a there. And I'm going to say, I think it's the best there that's been made with music for a movie. All right. All right. Well, 
Andy, we got to the end of our list. A lot of people have asked on Twitter, as you know, about what we're going to be doing after, if there is even going to be an after the list. Let's, here, let's let's count to three and answer yes or no. Is there going to be an after the list? <laughs> the count to three and answer thing, you're so fond of this. All right. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm on a kick. One, two, three. Yes. Yeah. All right, great. There's going to be an after. Yeah. Yeah, we've been referring to episodes that maybe we want to do throughout this episode. So the plan is, yeah, we're going to keep going and do some other things. We're going to try to figure out a new way to uh, give ourselves movie scores to cover. Yeah, I think them being given to us and not us just talking about what we want to talk about is a good aspect of this because uh, it makes us go places we aren't necessarily inclined to go. And that's interesting to me anyway, hopefully to listeners. Yeah, I think you're right. I think having this list has made us come to these discussions with a lot of different viewpoints and a lot of different attitudes towards what we were talking about and yeah so i don't think just cherry picking our favorites would accomplish the same thing so we'll figure something out yeah we'll figure something out i think that next time the next thing we should do should be a uh, kind of retrospective on this list the 25 we won't go as long as this episode thankfully <laughs> but yeah looking back at this i'll put together a name that tune for you i really appreciate the one you put together for me okay by then we'll have figured out how the future works <laughs> Yeah, we'll talk about it then. But yeah, I think that's a good idea. I think it would be fun to have a little bit of a wrap-up episode. You know, this was a big undertaking, and it took us a long time to get through this whole list of movies. We did it! Congratulations, Andy. Thank you. Congratulations to you, John. Yeah. I'm glad we did it. I'm glad we did it, too, and I think it's worthwhile taking a moment to reflect back. Yeah, maybe we'll think of some other games we can play in addition to Name That Tune. I still think that we should force each other to um, reorder some of the things on our list. Yeah, the Deep Regrets episode. I think that's... The Deep Regrets. That should be the next one, yeah. All right. Okay, so next episode is going to be the AFI List wrap-up episode. And by the time that episode is done, we'll have figured out what we're going to do for the future. Yeah, for the one right after that, at least. For the one at least right after that. Ah, wow, we did it. For people who listen to all 50 hours of this show or whatever it is at this point, thanks. Good God. Yeah, thanks a lot. We have gotten a lot of really, really lovely feedback and it has meant a great deal to us. And uh, we want to thank you very much. Thank you for listening. Yeah, truly. Hey, if you are now moved to uh, <laughs> to write some very lovely feedback of your own, you can still do it uh, over on iTunes, where you can leave a review. You can still do it over on Twitter at Scoresettlers, where we're happy to engage with you. And, uh, yeah, we'll keep on trucking. See you next time. May the force be with you. Come on, John. You wanted to say it. Yeah, right. If, <laughs> if ever anything deserved to end with that. <laughs> sure. May the force be with all of us. <laughs> John, I, you know, <laughs> I don't know how to present this stupid joke. I, I'm not totally comfortable with the way that this movie trivializes and I would say tacitly endorses cruelty to womp rats. <laughs> That's an excellent point. Luke says, oh, I just, I used to practice target practice on them and they're, they're only two meters long. That's like a person-sized animal that he is just killing for pleasure. Yeah, well, maybe it should be reported to the ASPCWR. <laughs> The TSPCWR.
when they're searching for R2-D2 in the land speeder, Luke says, oh, there he is on the scanner. Step on it. Why is C-3PO driving? <laughs> Why isn't Luke driving? <laughs> that is a good point. Did you notice that the whole world is grimy? Yeah. C-3PO actually takes a bath on screen. <laughs> right. And then the next time you see him, he is still filthy. <laughs> it's that dirty out there. Yeah. John, here was my joke question I was going to ask you, but it's a real question. Oh, good. When Han Solo tells Greedo, yes, I bet you have, after he says, I've been waiting for this, and then kills him, <laughs> is he saying that Greedo's life is so terrible that he longs for death? Because that's a weird dig, right? <laughs> I don't even know that. I mean, as, as a quip, yes, I'll bet you have, sounds good, but what does he mean? Greedo thinks that he's going to kill Han, or that he's... Yes, I finally got you where I want you, and uh, yeah, ha, ha, ha. exactly, that's what he's... I have the upper hand, finally. Yeah, I bet you have always been looking forward to thinking that you have the upper hand over me, Kapow. I, since I was a little kid, have always <laughs> thought he's like, you've always been looking forward to the moment when I shoot you, yeah. <laughs> but he doesn't know that he's going to shoot him. I know, but that's how that quip would work. The standard trope would be... Someone says, hey, uh, you know, I'm really enjoying this trip. Oh, you'll enjoy this trip. And then they trip them over a cliff and kill them. The quipness of it is that it gives away the turn of events. But in this case, it doesn't. <laughs> okay. When, when, when Obi-Wan Kenobi does the Jedi mind trick on the, uh, on the stormtrooper, he says, these aren't the droids you're looking for. Is he also simultaneously doing it on all of the other stormtroopers that are standing there? Yes. The answer is yes. Okay. It has to be. It has to be because otherwise, after they drive off, they would pull that guy aside and say, uh, that was really weird the way you started saying everything that guy was saying. <laughs> yeah. Why didn't you stop him? He was being pretty suspicious. <laughs> Maybe that is what they say in the next sequence. They added in the 1997 version, you can see them saying that in the background, the CGI. There's a scene where they're going, uh, Larry, are you feeling all right? I imagine his name is Larry. Yeah, but it's spelled L-A-R-I. <laughs> 